Okay, so we start our new series this morning, beginning with two Peter. And uh, with a little bit of background. I'm going fishing, said Peter. I'm going fishing. Do you remember that line? He says that line a couple of times, actually. But he says that line memorably at the end of John's Gospel, John chapter 21. You see, the resurrection has happened. Jesus has died and been resurrected. And they've had a few, a few glimpses of Jesus, but they haven't got the full picture. They don't know what to do. The Great Commission hasn't been given. Jesus hasn't ascended and gone back. So they're in a little bit of a transitory time. So they don't know what to do. So they sat around one day and Peter says, I don't know about you lot, I'm going fishing. And they all go fishing. And it's a wonderful reenactment of almost the exact same story three years before. See, three years before, in Luke chapter 5, on that day too, Peter said, I'm going fishing. And three years before, on that day too, the disciples had gone fishing. And on that day too, they had fished all night. And on that day too, they hadn't caught a thing. And on that day too, early in the morning, a stranger had stood on the shore and said, Friends, haven't you caught anything? Put your nets on the other side. Put out into deeper water. And on that day too, they had caught an enormous catch of fish and come face to face with Jesus, the Son of God. See, we have a, actually have a lot of stories about Peter. We know a lot about him. He is, I think, the most written about disciple in, in the Gospels. He's mentioned more often than any other disciple. But this one line, I'm going fishing, don't know what to do, I'm going fishing, reminds us of his humble origins. He wasn't educated. He's a fisherman turned apostle. Simon, Simon Peter, the fisherman turned apostle, the fisherman with little education. We think of him as a doer rather than a thinker, don't we? He's the one who, who got his sword out and cut off the ear of a, of a servant that was coming to arrest him, to coming to arrest Jesus. He's the one who jumped out of the boat with his clothes on in John chapter 21 to get to Jesus. He's the one who tried to walk on water. He's the one actually, who said, who was there at the transfiguration. He was the one who said to Jesus, when Jesus wanted to wash their feet, you're not washing my feet, Lord, you're too important. And Jesus has said, Peter, unless I do this, you can have no place with me. So Peter goes, oh, wash all of me then. Yeah? He's a doer rather than a thinker. He's the one who swears allegiance to Jesus. Just before Jesus is arrested, Jesus says, you will all fall away from me. And Peter says, even if I have to go to prison, even if I have to go to death, I will not leave you. And Jesus says, Peter, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny that you even know me three times. He meant well, and he failed, a little bit like us. He is the one also who Jesus reinstates. So if you follow that story through, in John chapter 21, after they go fishing, this is the first time that Peter is in conversation with Jesus after his denial of Jesus. So Jesus asks him those questions. Do you remember? He says, because Simon's his old man, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter goes, yes, Lord, I love you. Jesus goes, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter goes, yes, Lord, I do love you. And just a third time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
And Peter is hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And Jesus speaks those prophetic words to him about his death. He says, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself and you went where you willed. But when you are old, someone, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will tie you with a belt and take you where you do not want to go. Speaking about his death. And his death in this letter is fairly imminent. It comes quite soon. Peter pops up a lot in Acts. At the beginning of Acts, he gives the speech at Pentecost. He's the one who stands up for the disciples and, and preaches and 3,000 people say, are cut to the heart. Luke tells us in the book of Acts, they are cut to the heart and they say, what do we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptised. And that day, the church is born. He's the one who's involved in healings. <clears throat> you remember Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. That's Peter the disciple again. He's the one present at the first council of the church in Acts 15. The councils of, ch- of the church in the first five centuries were set up. Basically, they, they've given us everything we believe. Because there were so many stories about who Jesus was and was he really God and did he really do that? He couldn't be God and man. They sorted through all that. And Peter was there at the first council of the church in Jerusalem in Acts 15. So he has a huge part in the New Testament, a massive part. And we think of him as the most passionate and, de- and dedicated of the apostles. He is martyred. Uh, we, we have some evidence that he's martyred. He's crucified uh, in Rome under Nero. In fact, uh, uh, we believe that all the apostles were martyred, died for their faith, which is a great reason, actually, for somebody asked you why you believe. Well, 12 men, 11 men, died for this. They went to their death believing this. That's one great reason. Peter was crucified in Rome. We believe Thomas was killed in India. But all the apostles were martyred. But all that was so long ago. All these stories of Peter that we read about in the New Testament from the year 30 to 33 AD, roughly, during Jesus' ministry, it was so long ago compared to what we read today. It was so long ago compared to what we will read in a minute. See, today we fast forward from around 30 AD and all those stories of jumping out of boats and cutting off ears, we fast forward 30 years now and we look at an older Peter, probably not so much jumping out of boats and getting his sword out, a more reflective Peter, a changed Peter, a Peter who looks back on an astonishing life reflectively and writes a letter. So he's writing in the context of this new thing, the church, has just taken off. It's all over the place. These new things, Christians, they're now called Christians originally, they're called followers of the way, but around Acts 13, people start saying, hey, you're Christians, you follow Christ. They're all over the place. It's great, the church has spread thanks to Peter and his good friend Paul and Barnabas. But the church is still separated and dispersed. There is still persecution. there somewhere and so <clears throat> and so with that uh, introduction to Peter let's uh, go into the letter that he writes as an older man and let's pick up the action as Peter begins this letter to the churches across Asia let's read this together <clears throat> second letter of Peter chapter 1 verse 1 from Simon Peter 
a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world and by evil desires. And then the paragraph that we'll focus on today. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind, forgetting they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Let's pray as we enter this word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have worked through the ages and you work through all kinds of men and women through the ages. So we thank you today, Lord, for your working through this one man, Peter, through his life, through his adventures, through his dialogue, through his conversation, and now through his letter, Lord. Please show us something of your heart this morning for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So let's dive into this. Uh, This is the description that uh, Peter gives, really, of Christian character. He talks about goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection and love. Wouldn't it be great to be all of those, to be able to stand up and say, I'm all of those. I would like all those to apply to me as well. And what we're talking about today, just like last week, where John talked about the fruit of the Spirit, is Christian character. That the characteristics of a Christian should be seen, should be observed, should be felt in real life. It's the Holy Spirit who changes us month on month, year on year, and makes us more like Jesus and less like our old selves. And that's what we're talking about this morning, these characteristics. But how do we get like that? I would love to have knowledge and self-control. I would love to have godliness. That sounds great. But how do I get to that? And what's this idea of adding to your faith? You see, let me just flick back. Peter uses this phrase at the start of the red text. Make every effort to add to your faith. Add something to your faith. So what's this adding to faith about? He says, you need to add to your faith goodness. You need to add to your faith knowledge. You need to add to your faith self-control and perseverance. You need to add to your faith this thing, godliness. You need to add to your faith mutual affection, love. And he actually then says, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Confirm something else we need to do. He seems to be saying, there's something else apart from pure believing. There's something else apart from pure faith. 
And he uses doing words to describe Christian character. Add to your faith by doing these, he says. Other translations say, support your faith by doing these. The NIV says, add to your faith. So living a godly life, it seems, if you look at 1 Peter, is more than pure believing. It's more than pure faith, just believing in God. There's something else here as well. Peter says we need to see those characteristics in a Christian. So how do we get to that? How, how do we, what is the thing that we need to add to, to our faith? What is the thing I need to add to my faith to become like that? Because I would like to be like that. And Peter says you need to add to your faith. Well, what is it that we need to add to our faith? Is it, for example, spending time in quiet with God? Is that what he means? Is that how we get to a Christian character? Is it learning more of the Bible? Is it spending time together as we do today in fellowship? Is that what Peter's talking about when he says, add something to your faith? Well, all those are essential, absolutely essential. If we don't do those, we lose touch with God completely. But actually, I don't think they are the things that Peter's talking about when he says, add to your faith. He's talking about doing words. These things are all essential, spending time in quiet with God, learning more of the Bible, spending time in fellowship. But I would say they are not the primary way that Christian character is formed. They're not the primary way we learn perseverance or patience or self-control. See, there's two ways of forming Christian character and they're both important. I'm going to talk more about the second one today, but they're both important. Coming in and going out. We have to come in and do something and go out and do something. The coming in bit... That's what we're doing today. We're coming in, we're coming together for encouragement, for teaching, uh, to pray with each other, for fellowship. It's what we do in small groups. The coming in is the time alone that you spend with God. The time of refreshing, the time when you sink, when you recenter yourself on, on God, either in the morning or the evening or whatever time it is. That's the coming in part. But when you think about it, that's only like 5% of your life, isn't it? That's probably less than 5%. The other 95% is actually out there, is we're going out. That's when God changes us, when we're out there in the world, when we're out there in our homes with our families, when we're out there in our offices, in our jobs, when we're out there in our clubs and societies. That's most of, that's most of our lives, isn't it? That's what we do most of the time. But both are important for discipleship, the coming in and the going out. And today, Peter is talking about the going out. He's talking about doing something. See, I would say it's in the furnace of daily living, of what we do every day, that our Christian character is both formed and revealed. It's in the day-to-day that our characters are formed and revealed. It's in the interaction with real people, in real situations, at home, at work. It's with real problems. It's when real people are asking us to do something that we don't want to do, or real people expect something of us. That is the furnace in which our character is formed and revealed. Let's look at that some more. And let's think particularly about this Peter's idea of adding to faith. So I'm just going to step to one side for a minute and talk about this idea of adding to faith. Okay? Because... You may be asking the question, and sometimes we, it, it's a fair question, why do you need to add anything to faith? Why do we need to add something to faith? Isn't salvation by faith alone? That's the evangelical line 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how we are saved. I believe that. So why, if, if that's the case, why does Peter start talking about adding to faith? Why, why do we need to go and find things to add to faith? Why, isn't, isn't it all God's work now? Now we've given our hearts to God. Isn't it all God's work? And doesn't Scripture say that salvation is by faith alone? There's nothing else that you need to do. And, and didn't the reformers in the 16th century say that was the problem with the church? They'd added so many things that you needed to do. We need to get back to being saved by faith alone. Well, let's just take a quick look at that. What did the reformers say? What does the Bible say? Peter says, you need to add something to your faith to confirm your calling. But Martin Luther said, salvation is, we are saved by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone. And he said that because in the church in the 16th century, which, which desperately needed to be reformed, there were all sorts of other things going on. Perhaps the worst of which was the sale of what they called an indulgence. So let's say uh, Nick here, who leads a riotous life, he's lord of, lord of the manor, he goes out every night, gets completely drunk, spends the night with two or three women, he beats his servants when he comes home. So in the 16th century, he could come to me, the priest, and say, I've had a really bad week, but I couldn't help it, and you know, I'm probably going to do the same next week. And I said, that's okay, here's a scroll which will cost you £500. It's called an indulgence. I'll give you the indulgence, you give me £500, and you're all right with God now. And Luther said, that's not right. But how do you work that out? <laughs> how did the church get to such a desperate point that we were selling indulgences? So Martin Luther said, comes up with this phrase, except he didn't say that. Martin Luther didn't say that. We quote that. Martin Luther said... We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but faith, real faith, is never alone. It's never isolated in a laboratory, clinically, a faith that just exists by itself. We are saved by faith, but faith is never alone. Let's look at what Paul says. Paul, we could talk about a lot about Paul, but Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, pretty clearly, right, and remember, we're talking about why does Peter say, add something to faith? That's the question. And Paul says, it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, nothing you do, so that no one may boast. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Except this is an example of proof texting, where we take a verse to, to mean something which it didn't actually mean. If you look at the whole text... Look at what Paul actually said. Paul says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So if we take the whole thing, we say, actually, there's two aspects to this. It's not just believe and then forget about everything else. It's, yeah, believe, but then there's something else. And if we take the whole of Paul's statement, this is a wonderful idea that God prepared good works in advance for us to do. It's an incredible idea, isn't it? So, we are saved by faith alone. I completely believe that. But faith is never alone. Real faith is never alone. It doesn't end there. Or as Peter says, there's now something, it's great that you believe, 
That's fantastic. Now you need to add something to that. And it's our daily living, our works, that's the evidence of our faith. That's, the, that's how people know we have a faith, isn't it? By what we do, it should be. And it's our daily living that's the accelerator of our faith. So when someone, someone were to come to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to have more faith, I want to have a more spiritual life, we could talk about that, but I would also say in the same breath, what are you doing? What are you actually doing for God? It might not be in the church, it might be at home, it might be uh, for a charity, it might be elsewhere, but what are you actually doing to exercise your faith? Are you at work? Are you the only Christian at work? That's, that's the way we can exercise our faith. Doing Christianity develops our character. And what I do then for God is not to be saved, is not to be loved more. God can't love you any more than he loves you today. He already loves you completely just because you accept him. He already he loved you before you accepted him. So you can't do anything. But what you do is your gratitude to God. You then say, Lord, I'm so grateful for what you've done for me. I want to do things for you. That's faith that is not alone. We are saved by faith, but faith that saves is never alone. And that's what Peter is talking about. So faith, what I believe, and works, what my daily living, both matter to God, and they both matter to Peter in this letter. Or as James says in his letter, which is the most often referred to text on faith and doing, faith and actions, uh, James says, Show me how anyone can have faith without actions. I will show you my faith by my actions. I will show you my faith by my actions. It is in the furnace of daily living that our Christian character is formed and reveals. It is when I decide or not to, to do or not do an act of kindness, a random act of kindness for someone, that my love is formed and revealed. It's when I contain or feed my anger. When I'm angry, somebody's upset me and I can either try and get over it or I can feed it and become more and more bitter. I think, yeah, and, that, and, and this, they did this before and yeah, they'll probably do it. And yeah, all those other things they said. I can become more and more bitter, can't I? Or I can try and contain that anger. It's when I make that decision that my self-control is formed or revealed. Formed and revealed. It's when I decide how to respond to an insult. Someone says something to me, but I say something to them. Well, you know what? Maybe it's me that should say those two really hard words. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you felt like that. I didn't realise. It's, it's whether I have the courage and the guts to go and say, I'm sorry, that my character is being formed and revealed. I'll just give you a quick example. that um, Some years ago, I was praying for wisdom at a particular time in my life. Wisdom as a minister, wisdom as a father and a husband, wisdom as a man. And I felt God say to me, very clearly, right now, <clears throat> for you, Chris, wisdom is the same as patience. That, that's what you have to do. It's not great knowledge and all these, all these other things you might... It's just patience. And I thought, okay. And then <clears throat> I found that when I, in my daily life more and more things were happening to make me impatient. More and more people were cutting in front of me. More and more colleagues were not getting what I was saying and sending me horrible emails. More and more things happened. And I just went back to God and I said, Lord, this, is, this, is re- this has got worse. I'm becoming more impatient. And God said to me, well, how did you think you were going to learn? 
Did you think patience was going to come? Did you think a basket was going to come down with something in it called patience? It's in the furnace of daily living that our character is both formed and revealed. So let's recap on where we've got to. The Apostle Paul is writing at the end of his life. He urges his readers to develop marks of Christian character, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection and love. He says, add something to your faith, confirm your calling, get out there and do something. We said, how? How do you do this? And we said, well, it's both coming in, we need to do both, we need to come into Jesus, spend time with him, spend time in fellowship and learning, but we also have to go out. And they're not two different things. They're both sacred. You know, where, we, sometimes we, we, we look for God in our quiet times, but where's God in my job? Where's God in my office? Where's God in, when, I, when I chat to the neighbour? God cares about that as well. We struggle with the first, don't we? The coming in, the spending time reading the Bible, the spending time praying, and we get scared by the second sometimes, going out. We think, oh no, God might, be asked, God might tell me to go and evangelise South Warrington or something. You know, it's scary. Well, I don't know if God's asking you to evangelise South Warrington or not, but Peter here is talking about something much simpler than that. It's just daily living. Daily living. Our daily living, he said, that's the evidence of your faith. The daily living is the accelerator of your faith. If you want to accelerate your faith, think about patience and self-control and love in your daily living. It is in the furnace of daily living that our character is formed and revealed. What if we're not doing very well here? I mean, I, you know that story about impatience. Of, of course, you know me as the most patient person you've ever met. Right? And you're probably wondering, who was that Chris years ago who was impatient? Right? But I struggle as well. We all struggle with these things, don't we? Uh, and and some, sometimes God shows us these things, shows us the struggles, makes us acutely aware of them so that we can change, so that he can work in our hearts. So if you struggle, like me, with these marks of Christian character, <clears throat> good, you're honest. You're open to the Holy Spirit and God is showing you things. And the best news is, God is the God of second chances. God is always the God who says, come on, let's do it again. Come on, let's try it again. It's okay. He's the one who says, you have to dare to lose in order to win, but you have to do something. God is the God of second chances, and third chances, and fourth chances, and hundredth chances. He never tires of giving you another chance, of giving you another go to get it right. (coughs) However much we let him down in the past, he's always cheering us on to try again, and forming us in the process. Forming us. Just something to end on. There was a devout Christian man who fervently believed in God. He knew he needed God's help to overcome his character weaknesses, which were many. He heard it once in a sermon. At work, he often got cross with people. He wasn't very self-controlled, and they could tell. He was known as an impatient boss. If a project was going wrong, he looked round for who he could blame. Whose whose fault is this? He knew he was impatient. Afterwards, he would have liked to have apologised. 
it could have made a difference, but it's so hard to apologise to people, isn't it? Especially to people who are more junior, in more junior roles. And he thought, God understands me. God knows that inside I'm sorry. God knows that I've said sorry to him. There's no point in walking around saying sorry to these other people. No point. He saw people love each other. People they were related to, but didn't get on with. He saw that love made big demands of them. Love was hard. Sometimes love involved disappointment. He saw that love meant he had to get close to people he didn't get on with. Forgiving them when they didn't deserve it. And sometimes, especially in families, love seemed to produce arguments. He decided love is messy. He thought to himself, I have faith in God. What's the point in spoiling my life by loving these people? There's no point. He saw people giving to others. He saw men and women giving money to the poor and helpless. He saw that the more they gave, the faster the needs seemed to grow. He saw ungrateful recipients turn their back on the givers, on the people trying to help them. He saw that sometimes the money had not been used well. He thought to himself, well, I spend my time reading the Bible and I've prayed. What's the point in spoiling my life by giving? He saw people volunteering to do work they were not paid to do. He saw that volunteering meant you had to get up early and go out when you'd rather stay in bed or watch TV. He saw that volunteering meant you had less time for yourself. Volunteering meant persevering, which was hard. He saw that other people were not always grateful to the volunteers. He saw some volunteers fail because they were trying to do things which in the end they couldn't do. He saw volunteers with battle scars. So he thought to himself, you know what? Someone else will do it. Someone else will sign that form. Someone else will volunteer. I can still worship God. What's the point in spoiling my life with volunteering? What's the point? And so he died. And when he died, he wrote up his life story. He walked up to God and presented his life to God. A written account of his life. His life was undiminished by going round saying sorry. It was unspoilt by loving people he didn't like. It was unmarred by giving to people who always needed more. His life was unsoiled and untarnished by volunteering to help people who were ungrateful. His life was a clean life. He had gone to church, he had read his Bible, he never broke the law, His life was untouched by the filth, the grime and the dirt of this world. And so he presented his life to God on a beautiful white sheet of paper saying proudly, Lord, here is my life. And God said, life? What life? Jesus could have played it safe. Not, and not be involved in the dirt, the mess of this world, couldn't he? But it's in that precise place that God forms us, that God changes us. So when we roll our sleeves up, get our hands dirty, get our uniforms dirty, that God changes us, that God makes us. It's in the heat of the project that's gone wrong at work that our patience is formed and revealed. It's in the intensity of the argument at home 
But our love is formed and revealed. It's in the boiling pot of relationships that our godliness, our character is formed and revealed. It's in the mess of this world that God forms us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God, Lord, who got involved with this world, Lord, in the dirt, the grime and the mess. Lord, this week, Father, in our situations at home, at work, with our neighbours, in our clubs, help us, Lord, to be a people who believe, who have faith, but who also add to our faith the things you ask us to do. And as we do that, Lord, Holy Spirit, may you change us and make us more like Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're, we're coming to uh, in a moment we're coming to a time of uh, communion. Uh, if you read on a verse or two in the uh, book of Peter that uh, that Chris read to us in verse 12 of Second Peter chapter one, and this is another doing word. Peter goes on to say, "So I will always remind you of these things." even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. And I thought that was interesting because actually the communion is that command from our Lord, wasn't it, to remember, to remember. I always find it really interesting that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows how we forget things and how he specifically instituted this Feast of Communion uh, so that we, as his followers, would have something, uh, something physical with symbols to, to remember him. Uh, so we're going to go into that time of uh, communion now with uh, a song and then uh, if during the song, if those who are going to help serve with communion can uh, uh, make the way up, that would be great. Thanks.